Hello, and welcome to the Equity Foundation podcast. The Equity Foundation is the professional development arm of Actors' Equity. Our mission is to assist, educate, and inspire performers. To find out more, visit www.equityfoundation.org.au. Well, thanks for, for joining me and this luminous panel. I'm going to ask everyone to introduce themselves because I think they should have the right to represent themselves um, in, in a, a panel called uh, Acting Behind Stereotypes, uh, which I like to subtitle as Diversity and Representation on Our Stages and Screens. So we'll start with Kate Hood. Repeat all that. Um, I'm Deputy Chair of the Diversity Committee at Actors' Equity and um, I am... My story is that I was an able-bodied actor for most of my life um, and about 10 years ago I became a wheelchair user. Um, I have a neurological condition called HSP um, and uh, it's changed everything about my life but, you know, it's also opened a little window and the window is diversity within our industry and I'm really passionate about that. Thanks, Kate. Um. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's warmed up. That's a warmed up mic. I was sitting on it. I just thought for later, you know. Thank you. Um, my name is Tony Ayres. I'm not an actor. I'm a uh, started as a writer and then became a director and a producer and I sort of work as an executive producer mainly these days. Um, and uh, um, like. Kate are very passionate about issues around uh, representation and uh, on our on our, scre- on our screens primar- primarily. I don't work in stage. Thanks, Tony. My name's Osama. <laughs> this is a, someone's laughing. <laughs> you shouldn't be laughing when someone says my name's Osama. You know that, right? Although they did take my backpack. They said it was for the photos. <laughs> I beg to differ. Um, it's so hard introducing yourself because, you know, we're in Australia we've got this whole, you know, tall poppy thing. And I got asked once by a, a, a person, uh, oh, what do you do for a living, mate? And I said, uh, I'm an artist. Yeah, oh, yeah, mate, that's great. What kind of an artist are you? I said, uh, I'm an actor, writer. Oh, yeah, actor, great, writer. What do you write? I said, I've written a book. It's... Uh, uh, called Good Muslim Boy. He's like, oh, good on you, mate. It's great. I'm like, yeah, and it won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. He's like, all right, mate, settle down. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, so yeah, hence, that's the only way I could have told you that. <laughs> well done. But, um, uh, yeah, so I'm an actor, writer. I've uh, recently worked with Tony on a film called Ali's Wedding, which is very exciting. It comes out next year. Thank you. And um, we won the Augie Award for our Best Screenplay, myself and Andrew Knight, so that's uh, really great. And, um, yeah, I think that's why we're on the panel, because we're very passionate about uh, these issues, um, diversity and and having uh, people, real people, uh, represented on stage and on screen. Thanks, Osama. Mesa. Uh, I'm Mesa, Mesa Bouzaid. Um, I 
Um, I think when I first started doing stand-up comedy, um, when I first first started, I used I had a director work with me, and we came up with this line, um, and it and it's a list of things that I am to an extent, and I think it used to be. I'm a blind, Italian, Egyptian, Muslim, female comedian, learning sign language for the deaf, go figure. <laughs> um, and I, I guess that's, yeah, so I, yeah. Um, and I've done some short plays for Play for Australia recently for the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Um, that's just the most recent and I did Vessel Arts as well um, and Liquid uh, Architecture for Feminist Methodology, what does that sound like? So. So far. Thanks, Mesa. Good panel. So I just wanted to start by stating up front that, um, get this out of the way, that diversity is a really problematic term. Um, it posits the Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking, able body as the norm and everyone who also doesn't fit that norm is othered. And it also suggests that people um, of different ethnicities and artists with disabilities and women are a sort of like big homogenous group of others which is palpably problematic. Uh, we face different challenges. We have distinct takes on those challenges, which should be evident from the overall program of this summit. Um, and, um, and which is why it's great that we get to hear from a range of speakers with a, with a breadth of experience and different perspectives over the next hour. But I should note that the term is used in policy or in relation to discussions and forums like these ones because despite being fraught and limited, it points to the fact that there are groups of people whose bodies and accents and identification mean that they face exclusion, poor representation and substantive inequality in our industry. This inequality has been the talking point for at least the last 40 years. It's been something that I've personally found myself addressing in various ways for the last 20 years of my career and, uh, and it's a fight that continues today. So on that note, I was going to start with something a little cheeky and say, uh, Panel, what do you think has been achieved over the last half century in terms of better representation on our stages and screens? If we look back over the last 50 odd years, what have been the wins? <laughs> I, I can start there. Go on. Um, I would have said two years ago, I, I honestly would have said, I don't think we've done, I don't think we've achieved very much. Mm. I had, a couple of years ago, I felt that the kinds of issues that, came, that were around when I came out of film school, which is in the early 90s, they were pretty much the same issues. Like, no, and I felt that nothing had changed. But um, I, I, th I think we are at a moment, historical moment, which I hope will continue, where things do feel different to me now. And I think that the big shift has been... It's kind of like a, a mind shift thing where it's... Part, partly, there's a lot of political stuff, discourse that's been written around it, and people are becoming more educated and more aware of the issues. But there's, I think there's something even more fundamental, which is that it's, diversity is no longer um, a box you have to tick. It's, no, it's actually become cool. You know, like it's, it's gone from being a pain in the ass <laughs> that, you know, that you had to, you know, something that you had to sort of check off. And now it's become something that if you don't see a group of diverse faces on a screen, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like that's the world anymore. Mm. And if now if you see a whole bunch of just white faces, you're aware of it. And, and I, I think that, that that's a really big shift. Yeah. I don't often couch this, this side of the argument, and I thought it was going to be an 
interesting intellectual exercise for me to do it. And I, I, so I cast my mind back to second year cinema studies and a and, uh, very particular film that I remember, this 1950s Chips, Ra Chips Rafferty film called Bitter Springs. Anyone? No. Okay. So, and it was... <laughs> <laughs> Didn't think so. And uh, it was like this frontier film and it dealt with the, like the, literally the dispossession of Indigenous people and it was supposedly giving both sides of that in this particular 1950s flavoured way. And, um, and the end of the film, the moral of the film, it kind of closed on this kind of mid-shot of, of Chips Rafferty going, well, as you know, this, this is, I see it, we can look at it in three ways. I'm paraphrasing. We can, we can push them out, we can starve them out, or we can take them in there with us. And then there's this, like, shot of all these happy Indigenous people sharing sheep on, the, on Chips Rafferty's ranch. And, and that was the overtly assimilationist rhetoric, which was the most progressive rhetoric of the day, right? <laughs> Um, and so to the, to the 80s and, and, and 90s um, multicultural discourse that I grew up with, where we had Mark Mitchell's favourite family character of Con the Fruiterer um, versus Wog Boys and their own kind of, uh, I guess, reclaiming of that space and trying to, you know, uh, address those kind of cultural stereotypes and own them, um, to the present day where we have um, Redfin Now and Clever Man and... And even if I look at a commercial channel network primetime rom-com, um, The Wrong Girl, where we have representation of um, Indigenous character, a character of Indian descent, a character in a wheelchair, and they're just, they're just characters in this, um, in this film, then I, I tend to agree that we have made some progress. I don't often <laughs> concede that ground, but I'm going to do that today. Um, Okay, so then, guys, if that, if, if like, why, why are we here? <laughs> if, we've, if we've made this process and like, progress and all's well in the in the world, why are we still talking about it? If it's not solved, what remains to be solved, and where are we falling down today? I reckon <laughs> that Alex. we still have a long, long way to go within our industry. I think that we have a long, a long road ahead of us if we really want to get rid of the word diversity, if we want to get rid of the word, word disabled, if we want to get rid of those sort of ways of framing difference um, so that in the future people are just cast because they're actually good at what they do. You know, we have a long way to go to achieve that. And where we are at the moment is that we're acknowledging the elephant in the room and doing something about it. And, I mean, from my point of view as an actor with a disability, um, I, I've been through a period where really there was just a blank space around me because people didn't really know what was okay and what wasn't okay, whether to talk about it, whether to include it, whether to normalise me or, you know. There, there were all those sorts of questions and they're still there, actually. But things are changing. And I think that we are sitting on fertile ground right now. I think there's a real interest out there in uh, producers, directors, actors, theatres. Um, my personal story is that I've begun to work as an actor again in the last probably four months, I would say. And uh, before that, really not very much at all in terms of stage and television. So, so Kate, can, can I pick up on that? Do, do you feel that the, is the crux of the issue, and we've heard a lot about this in different panels in different contexts today, is, is the meta-narrative of our cultural production, like who, who is in charge of programming 
our stages and screens, their unconscious bias, their control of the narrative, and you know what is told, and 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 our severally different places in that narrative. That's re I think that's really interesting. Um, for me, the essential problem with diversity and with difference not being on our stages and screens is that we don't have diverse writers in writing rooms. So we don't have disabled people writing for television, for example. We don't have, um, you know, writers of, of all diversities throughout all of our industry. And I think that's where it starts. Because I think that the stories need to get out there. Once the stories get out there, then the producers are going to have to start getting the directors to cast diversely. And job done. But, um, and before that happens, I think that we need to have drama schools actively taking quotas of people of diversity. I think that really needs to happen. Tony, you, you've you've been behind the scenes. What so, what's that? What was that like? You know, in, if you if you have a look back over your career, um, we we the only person in the room from a non-white background. Did you feel was that something that you felt are you passionate about this because that's something that's part of your lived? He doesn't experience? speak Chinese, so he, I don't think he feels <laughs> Asian at all. And I beat him in table tennis, so he's definitely not Asian. <laughs> I let you in. <laughs> but I don't speak Hindi and Major asked you how to pronounce her last name. So, like, <laughs> That's true. You know, so, so um, I'm, I'm interested. Sorry. No, you're right. Uh, no, I, so I had the opposite experience, which was that I, I, I wrote something very personal when I finished, when, when I was at film school, uh, which is a, a, a half hour thing that got made and and it was about my mother and my sister and me, and uh, it got it did very well for a half hour thing, mm -hmm. and um, and suddenly I, for someone, as Sam is right, I, I didn't particularly identify as being Chinese because I came from a generation where you weren't encouraged to identify. So mm -hmm. so, and I don't speak Chinese, but suddenly I was the Chinese writer, <laughs> <laughs> and so like I kept getting approached to do all these Chinese things, and <laughs> and so it was kind of like. So I, I think I sort of basically started my career in the margins, and and then I I did a lot of identity stuff. So so it was it, it continued to be you know I looked around issues of being gay, about being Chinese, about being gay and Chinese, you know like so so I I made a lot of my work was around those things, and I guess that what you know the as you know you can only do that sort of stuff for so long. You know I think there's a limit to that. And um, and as I developed in m my career, I, s I became more political about it. Like it, be like I I guess I when I started, I expected a whole you know like I was just part of a, a whole generation, mm -hmm. and then it was kind of like two decades later, it, there wasn't a generation; it was still mm. just me. Mm. You know, and three decades later, it's me and Benjamin Law, right? <laughs> <laughs> which which you helped. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So 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 you know, like I, I feel like. Um, and that, that and I, it's only been in the last, you know, probably five, five, five six years that I, I felt much more that, it, you know, every, everyone needs to have something that, they, that is their personal project. And, and it feels to me like my personal project is a political project, which is around telling stories um, from 
worlds that we don't see very often. And, and I would sort of say it's not necessarily for a political reason. I think it's a political project, but I don't think it's... The, the reason that I'm interested in telling those stories is because I think they're amazing stories and mm. I think that they can translate. Like Ali's Wedding, which, you know, I worked with Osama on, is a beautiful story, which is a love story. And that's, it's set in a very particular world, but it's, the world is the background, you know, the, the, yeah. you know and I think that that's, you know, we d people don't have cultural foregrounds, they have cultural backgrounds. backgrounds. And I think that's really important to remember because it, because that's the, that's the thing that turns um, a piece from a polemical piece into uh, a piece, a work of art. If I uh, pick up on Tony's point, th there, is a, there is a shift, uh, that's been happening, and and it has to because, you know, tidal waves shift the heaviest of anchors. So I think early on, uh, similar when, when I was when I started writing, and uh, I'll talk about my acting <laughs> gigs later, oh, but all uh, oh, my terrorist roles, <laughs> but um, coming back to that, yeah. But in terms of uh, writing, I I also felt the need to write these to tell these personal stories. And I think it's really important if we're performers and we're also storytellers. Uh, at, at one point in my life, I just thought of myself as an actor, but that wasn't very fulfilling. I really enjoyed doing uh, stand-up comedy, spoken word, uh, writing, telling stories, and, um, and slowly I worked on the craft of, of writing, screenwriting uh, especially, because I was always writing short stories and whatnot. And uh, Tony's right. So you first start with your own stories, and as you develop, then you start uh, doing much uh, wider stories. I mean, it's like uh, Scorsese who told Italian stories early on, uh, and you can name all the Italian set mafia background set films, and and now he's doing everything else. And um, and I think that's really important to remember that you can start from that nucleus, which is yourself and then expand and I was once asked uh, during an interview um, that how, how does it feel to, to have won an award as a Muslim <laughs> and uh, a few people get the irony but, um, <laughs> but I, I, I told the person interviewing me I said well I don't really wake up going I've just woken up as a Muslim <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna put on some shampoo as a Muslim because <laughs> Muslims shampoo and condition very differently. Uh, I just do it as me and uh, I don't touch on my mic here as a Muslim, you know. So that's, uh, and uh, so that was the kind of, then I realised, look, I could tell stories about depression. I could tell stories about uh, love about and of course there's the stories about identity and belonging which we all have anyway regardless of our cultural and religious background so I think that's the the important thing for storytellers to remember that you can tell the wider stories as long as you start with what's very close to your heart. Maisa I, I want to um, I'm going to throw to you now I and I'm coming back to your terror stories as well so like <laughs> 
cook me a good one. Um, I, I, I have accrued a number of wacky stories over the, the decades that, um, that speak to sort of issues of uh, exactly like that, uh, of, of barriers of people's perceptions, of being asked to bring um, the music to the kind of dance that I do. What kind of dance might that be? Oh, you know, your Indian dance. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, I, I thought maybe you could tell uh, some, so, so some of the, the audience some of these experiences, um, not just because actors tell good stories but because inequality is a lived experience and so for those who don't live it, it can feel abstract and worthy. Um, um, I did a, a comedy skit for Channel 31 um, called What's Wrong With You um, and it was an eight-part series and I, um, I was approached to write a skit um, and I wrote it about an experience I had about guide dog access. Um, and I, um, so of course I went into my own culture to get the material. Um, so I did it on a nut shop in Sydney Road um, and him refusing access, like, well, the dog will eat my shop. Why? I just mobs the floor. And, and, and so... <laughs> <laughs> Say no more, hey. <laughs> um, and um, so I wrote the comedy skit and I found a friend that also has an Egyptian background and is an actor and we did the comedy skit and it was aired last Friday and that was the first time I saw myself on TV and I had to leave the room. I felt all shaky because I was the first time seeing myself on TV. Um, I guess that was a, a good chance for me to see me on community TV and talking about something that is I've experienced about me and my community um, and being, um, I guess, an Italian-Egyptian female with a guide dog. Um, and, yeah, it went well because at the one point that the actor would be like, would you like some Turkish delight? And then my response is, not tonight. <laughs> so we really... Um, <laughs> And, and then I um I leave the I leave the shop oh I leave the um the set and I hand him make guide dogs welcome thank the little thing a little gift saying guide dogs welcome and then he looks at it and then this scene ends so um yeah so that was I guess my way of of education as well I don't like to be the whole ambassador because I don't feel like that's really but I love the way that I can use my art form to say a good message um, and to my community that have, can be quite difficult um, so I guess um, that's yeah my C31 experience <laughs> sure and um, okay so like we I guess on the panel we've talked about now, how we've arrived at this position in our career where, in broad brushstrokes, everyone feels fairly capable and confident to, to, to just kind of ambassador themselves and to the extent that they want to and just do their work, right? Um, but I'd just like to go back a, a few steps in people's careers to the parts that were pointy and difficult. And uh, I think as actors, we're sort of particularly vulnerable because of all of the, you know, all of the things we've discussed in other panels, the, the, the project by project work and um, you're not necessarily, unless you're writing and then producing, you're not necessarily in charge of your own destiny. You're asked to come and turn up in, in audition rooms um, for sometimes less, less than um, fully fleshed out, realised human characters. So when, when you've been negotiating these stereotypes, be it a, a role or... Um, or just 
perceptions, I suppose, about you know whether you should be in the space or not. Um, how, how, if we step back a, a few steps, how 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 has that process been? Have you, has something leaped to mind for you, Kate, or Osama, or or Mesa, or even Tony? You talked a bit about being the only non-white <laughs> person in the room for for, for three decades. Um, I, well, I think for me, I mean, my experience is that um, it's that thing of people not knowing what to do and so there being a blank space around disability and, um, you know, we've got um, shows that portray a disabled person with an able-bodied actor playing the role um, and so what do we do about that, you know, is that... Is it okay for us to to accept roles like that within the business? Or it, what do you think, Kate? I'd, I'd like to well, take I, it. look. Here's I, I reckon. You know, we're we're in process. We're working it out at the moment. But I do think that if it's not okay for um, an actor to black up, then I reckon it's not okay for an actor to crip up. And, I mean, I think that um, a question arises in, in people's minds, directors and producers and writers' minds. They, they say, well, okay, how am I going to find mm. a person who is capable of playing this role? Well, that's what they used to say about Aboriginal people as well. That, that gets said a lot. Uh, I've heard this one a lot. Uh, of there just aren't any... Yeah, I, I hear I mean, the one that I I hear a lot is oh we can't find any Indian actors I'm I'm right here <laughs> like you know yeah. and I know like about five women who very specifically have that same response when when we get confronted with well we just couldn't find any of the depth of talent um, and experience so is it about not actually bothering to say, is that is that is your issue in that in that context that how do you know there aren't any actors with a disability you haven't searched for them. Well, exactly. I mean, but it goes back to what I was saying before. If drama schools are not taking and training young, talented people with disability, then there's no pathway for mm. them. You know, they, d they don't do the final year show. And so agents and directors don't get to have a look at them. And so, you know, I know that at the moment, Alison Telford is desperately trying to cast a disabled actor for Glitch. Mm -hmm. Next year, can't find one. You know, so it's kind of we've got to go backwards. We've got to start at the very beginning. We've got to start with writing drama schools, um, uh, people with disabilities being brought along actively, being sought out and being brought along. Mm. Um, and we've got to recognise that dis within our own industry, we've got to recognise that disability is part of the human condition. You said something outside um, that I think is, is good to bring in at, at this point about we are, as an, as an industry, are not particularly interested in seeing difference, you know, in any, in any of its... Like yeah. not, um, that we, we're oriented towards... The myth of perfection. The myth of perfection. Yeah, I call it the myth of perfection. And I think that... I mean, generally speaking, I mean, we're here really to talk about women in the industry and, you know, every woman here knows about this because when I was an able-bodied person going for castings, 
I was, you know, in my 30s, I was being um, seen for the grandmother role. <laughs> and I, I doubt that's changed, you know. Um, it, it's sort of... Um, it's not realistic. And, I mean, for me, the great thing about being disabled is that I don't fit anymore into the myth of perfection. It's gorgeous. <laughs> I love it. You know, because I can actually go and, and say and do anything I want to do. It's a really wonderful thing. There's great freedom in there. Um, but I think that within our industry, we've, we've really got to address this. It's a big issue. We need to portray people accurately and portray a diversity of people in a diversity of ways and be really happy with that. That's a, that's a great point and I'm going to segue on that point. What is the worst stereotype that you've ever had to negotiate? Me? <laughs> yeah, Osama, you. <laughs> and how did you do it? Like, I mean, you call into a room, you're really unhappy with the material you got. Well, early on in your career, you kind of have to take on everything right so mm -hmm. you do everything you build up your cv um but that's to the young actors it's not great for your soul i don't think it does it does i mean what's the point of going in to do two two lines on something that you hate you got to really like what you do um but so after a couple of years I, I actually stopped i only started doing really good auditions but then I mean, really. <laughs> good auditions too, I'm, I'm with you. I'm a really good auditioner. Um, and, uh, but, but roles that I liked. But I also knew that, well, one, uh, ten years ago, a lot of the Middle Eastern roles would go to my Italian and Greek friends. Mm. And they quickly became my enemies because... <laughs> Because I thought, oh, man, these guys, they get Acropolis. Now they get Wogs on. And now they get, you know, Muhammad and Ali. I mean, come on. <laughs> but that was uh, the arena. And, um, but you also need some luck as well. And that, we can't deny that. That's, you know, you could have all the talent in the world. You could be the right person. But you need luck as well. You need to be there at the right place at the right time. I remember auditioning for a film called Saved which uh, Tony directed uh, opposite Claudia Carvin. And um, I think I did three callbacks or something from memory and it went on for about three months. And, and uh, honestly, the last two weeks, I uh, didn't give up, but I thought, that's it, que sera, sera. It, it, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen because I've kind of killed myself for the last two and a half months getting a callback, then another callback. And, of course, I was aware of who Tony was and I'm... Uh, you know, Claudia Carvin, I had a crush on her for years. Here I am playing a love interest. Um, so when I got the, 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 the role, it, I wasn't relieved. I, it was just like, okay, let's start work. And, um, and from then on, it's been like that. And so I think, uh, to answer your question, I, in the interim, <laughs> I've had those roles where um, yeah, I get call, called up to play a, a, a doctor and I'm like, great, I go in and they're like, oh, can you have him talk with an accent? And I say, well, why? Why, why does he need to talk like this, bro? You know, they're like, no, not that accent. Um, um, so, so, um, and then, and then, and then you start asking, well, why can't, uh, why can't he just be, that doctor, without any, without us putting all those uh, 
um, marks on them. And uh, so, I, uh, so I just said, I I'm going to do it in my accent, which already has an accent, but I'm just going to do it in that. And if that's what you're happy with, that's what you're happy with. And if not, I walked out. And, and so you can do, you could start kind of doing these mini revolutions that you might not get the job, but at least you send a signal. And you spoke of Alison. Alison's fantastic. She, she cast, recently cast Ali's Wedding. Mm. And she went out of her way. And I'm sure she'll do that for Glitch as well. She's different Alison. Oh. Alison Meadows. Meadows. Okay. Alison Telford. All oh, right. I've worked with both. Okay. <laughs> well, both great. They're both fantastic. <laughs> but uh, my point is about casting directors who go out of their way. And there are casting directors who go out of their way to find that cast from a different background, but the role doesn't necessarily ask for it. And then there are people, content creators, so, like Tony, who go out of their way to write shows that are non, uh, uh, whether non-gender uh, specific or like a cop, policeman, policewoman, it doesn't matter. Um, so you just write the role and then, and then you cast it. But the funniest one was, I worked with Andrew Knight writing Ali's Wedding. And you might know him, he, uh, he's done Rake and uh, the Jack Irish films. And um, we're writing Ali's Wedding one day and then he said, mate, I've got a great role for you on Jack Irish. And, um, and, and just before then we'd been talking about how shitty it is for casting and that I only get cast as a terrorist and all that. He said, yeah, no, we've got to do something about that. Um, anyway, this role is a terrorist. Um, but uh, I think you'd be great in it. <laughs> and uh, so, so um, I did that role because I respect Andrew a lot and I love Jack Irish. But, um, uh, but yeah, I had the whole beard and as it was happening, I said to myself, this is the last fucking time I'm putting on this beard, you know, unless I grow one, which will take 10 years. But... Um, uh, but yeah, some, look, sometimes it's out of your hands and uh, un yeah, unless you start creating your own content, a at the end of the day, you're going to go up and you're going to be up against a uh, hundred other people who are auditioning and uh, yeah, sometimes you just need that luck to go your way and um, I, was, I was really fortunate it went my way with Tony because then Ali's wedding came from me telling Tony a story on set and... We've built up a rapport since then, but um, so sometimes you just gotta, um, yeah, get lucky. I think as well, uh, and be a good auditioner. And as, be uh, good auditioning. <laughs> I was I was gonna ask just as a follow up, in that just in the, in in the middle of that story when you're saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna push back in this room. I'm not I, I'm not why why do I have to do it in this accent and and I, I'm gonna use my own accent. Generally, what has what have you? Found the response to that that kind of those kind of pushbacks been well. Sometimes they say the producers want it like that, and I say, okay, great. Well, I'll put mine down on tape, and if that's how they want it, then they'll cast it that way. But um, but and that's fine. I'm I'm cool with that. I mean, if that's how they want to see it, then that's how they see it. But I think uh, just being that pet all the time, it's not it's not great. I mean, we. We do have a little bit of control. Let's not make ourselves as actors that, you know, it, it, we're the, the slaves of the industry and, and, and they have every... Yeah, sure, if they want to go into a different direction. There was that uh, little web series called The Auditioners. It's great. Mm -hmm. He does one in one of the webisodes 
and she says to him, can you do it in an Asian accent? And he's a white boy, and he starts squinting, and she's like, why are you stereotyping? Um, <laughs> um, but, but, um, but, so sometimes they, they, they want more or less of an emotion or whatever, but if, if they start bringing in a background, uh, unless it serves the story, uh, as it did say in, in Saved, where I was a, a, a refugee who'd just been in the country for Terror a month. Terror suspect. <laughs> yeah, that's how they edited the make film. That Unbelievable. <laughs> um, but uh, but but then then you don't push back. But I think if you're just going up for the nurse or the vet or uh, any other the lawyer or any other character, you don't need to play to that stereotype. And the more we do our bit, and the casting directors do our bit. And, uh, and there's great will out there now, guys. I mean, I've been into a lot of different story rooms. And, yes, the writers are predominantly white. And most of the story rooms I've been to, uh, like Tony, uh, 20 years ago, I find myself the only Middle Eastern guy. Um, but I don't, yeah, look at myself as a Middle Eastern guy. I, look at my, I see myself as a storyteller. So, uh, um, and then they see that. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of goodwill. So the... The, there is a shift, but we're part of it as well, and we need to be a part of it. We can't just go, well, it's up to them to start writing roles like that. Well, if they write a role like that, we can interpret it the way we want as well. Great. I think that's that's true. We're going well, to... <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to go to theatre in a bit. I want to talk a little bit about our stages. But before that, um, this year Screen Australia re released a um, very significant study of diversity on our Australian screens since, well, the most significant study um, since television began in 1956. Tony, what did you make of the findings? What, do you, what do you is your opinion um, uh, on, you've said that you think we're in this moment of fertile ground and things are, are going to shift. Why, why do you think the shift is happening now and why on our screens? And then perhaps to segue to, to where I'm going to go ahead next in stages, why do, you th do, do you think TV is leading and, and if so, why? Um, I, I think it's complicated why it's changing, but I, I think it's change, changing at a number of levels. I think the main, one of the biggest changes is to do with globalisation and uh, and the, the breakdown of the single audience, the idea of a single audience. I think that the world is becoming more tribal, like the internet is, people are kind of clustering around identities and uh, seeing the things that they want to see. So uh, the idea of a, a, a single broad audience is breaking down and, and, and you can see that in the numbers, you know, if you follow ratings, which I have, kind of have to do for my work. Mm. You know, the, the, the things that were considered a success five years ago, you know, like things were like 1.5, 2 million, like it, it now a hit for a commercial TV show is a million. Like, so that's dropped right. in a phenomenal amount of time. And so the world is becoming more tribal around, uh, and so pe people want, and there's also a huge kind of um, bubble, you know, people talk about peak TV, the content bubble. There's so many stories being told and people want there's an audience now for uh, very particular stories, you know, like, and, and the thing that, you know, basically, you know, if you, you most story uh, write, theories of writing say that there's something like seven stories or nine mm -hmm. stories, like there, there's a limited number of narratives. And, um, and now what, what's happening is that you refresh a narrative, like last year, the, the most important word for broadcasters was the word fresh. 
you know, it's got a really interesting, it was the stalest word. <laughs> but but you, you would go to, you would watch Project Runway and they would say fresh. Then you would go to a meeting with Channel 4, they would say fresh. You would meet with Netflix, they would say fresh. <laughs> and that, and what, what they're talking about is that... Uh, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> what it means is that they want to find a new way of seeing something old. You know, they want something old, which is like a rom-com or uh, something, you know, a thriller or so, something that feels familiar and they want to see a new way of telling that story, like a crime story. And the obvious new way of doing it, you, the perfect... Muslim rom-com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Night Off, for instance. It took a story, uh, an English story set around a white guy, set it in a different world and it was like a massive hit. And, you know, and you know what's kind of interesting is that... And I think that reality TV has helped us with that. It's shown us that audiences can connect to people who aren't white. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, you know, because, you know, like Idol, you know, <coughs> people were cheering Casey, Casey Donovan, yeah. you know, an indigenous woman. Um, and so I think, I think that, that that's part, you know, like I think it's a long, complicated theory about why things are changing. But I think that that part of it is actually to do with economics. Because I don't think, you know, because I've watched for you know, 25 years, the political intent doesn't really change things. The mm. thing that changes things is a shift in the market and the shift in the way people watch. Okay. So how, if that's, if those are the drivers, um, and in today with, you know, one in, one in four of Australia's 22 million people born overseas, 44% um, um, were born overseas or have a parent who was, four million speak a language other than English. We speak to over 260 languages and identify with more than 270 ancestries, yet our main stage theatre companies, staffed predominantly by left-leaning progressives, remain one of the most reliably white spaces on and off stage. So I'm going to open this up to the panel. Why do we think that is? Um, what, what do we think it would it shift to take? Because it, I suppose theatres don't run on the same kind of commercial imperatives that screened it. They're different. They're differently organised, you know. Do you reckon? Mm. I don't know about that. I mean, protect, I, think that I would say they're protected cultural spaces and they don't see their stakeholders as being the patrons who come and see... The, they see their stakeholders as being... the They report upwards. I, 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 this is a theory yeah. I'm kicking around at the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that's true. Um, but I do think that there's an economic imperative around diversity as well. I do think that... Um, you know, when people see themselves represented on stage or on screen, they come, you know. Um, and Wog's out of work is testament to that, you know, because when that first hit the stage in Sydney all those years ago... It, was it Melbourne? Yeah. Or Melbourne first, then Sydney? OK. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean... It's it sold out for months and months and months and it's just a real indication that there are our audiences out there who are not coming into the theatre um, because they're not seeing themselves represented on stage. Um, hey, Candy. <laughs>
And Candy, when you took the hot brown honey, did you shop it around at, um, at, at theatre companies as a concept? Or, and you were, am I right? Ah. Well, <laughs> where's Matthew it? Lutton? He's uh, the artistic director. No, he's great. Um, he, he is. No, I'm working with him now. Um, uh, look, as actors, I find we're very dispensable. We're, like, you're a, you're a hero one day, and uh, if you're on set, you know, you've got the umbrella treatment and the whole stepping up into the... Uh, <laughs> there's a few <laughs> um, into the um, the makeup truck and all that, and but when you're wrapped, you're gone. That's it. No one wants to know you. And um, similarly, uh, on stage, yeah, you could do a, a really good show, and you get all these uh, reviews. And and the, I think what I found is you just gotta keep churning out work, keep rocking up to auditions if there are any, and. Uh, and, I mean, I'm talking as a writer actor here, so um, I just continually just write new material. And I, I, I feel you, sister. It's, it's really difficult. And you have to ask the, the structures and the companies to step up more. You have to be conversational about the individual. You have to talk to the I agree. It's political. It's but actually political. Th th you've got also... And it's a human rights issue. I, I've been told, uh, I, I asked this question, I said, why, why do we have all these plays and, and, you know, and we've got the Shakespeare company, why are we doing five different, more different Shakespeare pieces this year and uh, at MTC or whatever? And they say, well, it's our audience. And they talk of their demographic, which is changing slowly, but predominantly their middle age plus. Uh, and of a white demographic. Now, if you go into the smaller theatres, maybe you'll have more of a diverse audience. But that's the, that's the reality. The ticket holders, I don't know about going up and how far that goes up, but y you go to an opening night of an MTC show or a Malthouse show, even Black Showgirls. The other day I came there and fantastic show, but 95% of the audience was white. And we also have to deal with that reality and, and then that becomes a programming issue, whether they take a punt and they take a risk and they say, well, Candy's great, we know she's great because we've seen her show and she's got a five-star show, she sells out, let's program her in. And I think that's where the, the issue is and right now it's been pointed towards the audience and but our audience yeah, as well. I and I think, I think we have seen... There's lots of examples we could go into where we see this myth of the audience won't respond to that or they won't identify with that. But they um, do. It, they do. And yeah. correspondingly, there's a big bunch of... I mean, I, I might ask you, Maze, whether you feel... Like, do you feel uh, um, the, the main stage... Do you feel represented or do, do you, is it somewhere that you go as a, as a theatre practitioner to see... Ethnic disabled? I don't know. No. Uh, there is a... <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was a bit of a leading question. But, I mean, you know, so... No, uh, yeah, it is, because I don't... I, I'm such a... There, there is... A, I know there are people... I know there are individuals that are, have a diverse background and that have a disability, but I don't see that in... Um, and I feel that, for me, it's opportunity. Like, um, the Vessel Arts thing I did, that was because I did a play a few years ago for Melbourne Fringe and then he saw my work and really liked my writing and then put me in that one, uh, put me in that program. And I feel like that's just because the opportunity if someone saw me at the right time and put me in a... In a so I feel for me that um, 
And then the Channel 31 gig, that uh, writing pro writing and acting thing that I did, that was just, um, for me, it's more and more opportunity because last year I felt like I was dead to the arts and that I wasn't, um, that no one was interested in me anymore and that I didn't, all of 2015, it was a weird year. I, so I, I sort of gave up and then suddenly October 2016, I started having a few projects. Um, so I guess for me, it's mostly opportunity. Um, and yeah, and, and yeah, for me to be on the stage, because I love performing, um, whether it's comedy or writing skits or even just, yeah, having that chance. I, I don't know what the time is like, Chloe. Do we have any time for questions? Make it five. I know we started late, probably not. Just thought, well, two, two questions. This one there. I'm Catherine, at any rate. Thank you all for being here. And great to see someone in a chair. Um, I've actually grown up with a dad in a wheelchair all my life. Um, so good on to you. And uh, there's so much you can still do when you're in a chair. So don't forget that. Um, but you were talking about casting with disabled. Um, I've had the, the fortunate experience of working with a company in Geelong, back-to-back theatre group, and they produce the most amazing, fantastic work and they have absolutely some very do. talented actors. Yeah. So tell Alison that. <laughs> we're watch, working with Back to Back at the moment on a oh. TV project, oh, which fantastic. we're very excited about. Fantastic. Often those, it's often those smaller companies that are kind of picking up the slack, I find, with, with this sort of thing and just and, and really carrying that can forward. Back to back, a incredible... I think Candy said to me, Candy said to me a few months ago, it's almost like we're playing catch-up. Stay, like, was it called stage catch-up? The stage is catch... Yeah. Okay. Hi, my name's Francisco. Um, I'm an actor. Um, I'm curious about this question about audiences. We've talked a lot about writers, producers needing to be more diverse so we have more diverse representation. So even if, even if a generally 90% a white audience related to diverse stories, do we still think there's an, an impetus to drive more diverse audiences to theatre or to, or to create content for more diverse audiences? And, you know, what are the ideas for what those avenues would be? Like, I know Channel 31, I used to be involved with them uh, years ago, and the idea was that you're providing content that might not necessarily rate the highest, but you're providing access to, to certain communities... Um, Tony, I know you touched on online communities. What are your ideas about what the future of that might look like? Um, I guess niche, niche um, ind mini industries, I guess, for diverse audiences. I, I've had a range of experiences. Like I made a, a film, uh, which was a you know a very personal film called The Home Song Stories, uh, and I, I just sort of thought, oh, it's a, you know it's a film about, about a, you know migrant Chinese experience. We'll get all these Chinese people to come out to it no no one came and and so it was kind of like well you just have to remember that that a diverse audience is still uh probably going to go to the cinema so, so, you know which is, you know i can talk about cinema and tv um they're going to go to the cinema for pretty much the same reason that um other audiences go to the cinema for which is you know they want to be entertained they wanna, my my film was really miserable <laughs> and I, it did very, you know, it won a lot of awards, but it was really sad. And, um, and, and so I sort of think, well, you know, maybe we have to think about, you know, if we want to bring wider audiences in, we also have to think about what we're offering them. And they may not necessarily, you know, so, so it's about the offer. And it always is to, to every audience, I think. 
Um, so I think that part of this, uh, part of the future of audience engagement is one recognizing where particular kinds of stories fit within the ecosystem of what the ecology of what people want to watch, um, and two, um, I, I think it's also being able to you know, and I think this is what's exciting that's happening now that uh, that there is a sort of uh, White audiences are able to experience other kinds of stories. And I think that that's also, both of those things are, are really important. I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think that both things are important. But that, you know, so, so that's where I think the future is. I would only add to, to that that um, I think the idea of the people who are talking about who's, who's behind the, the narrative and making an explicit invitation, particularly with theatre, seeking out those communities and, and making them known that, it, that this is a space that they're welcome to, that they might see themselves every now and again and they, you know, they might not. And the regularity of that, so it's not like there's a year of feast like Maze is talking about and then this sort of drop off and famine and then maybe in a couple of years' time we'll get a turn again. Um, I, I think the regularity of that conversation, I, I would suggest, is, is, is a really, really important, you know. Yeah, um, it can be discouraging. When you have those big plateaus of, yeah. It's still very different for stage, I, I found, because on on TV you can just watch it from your lounge room, but at stage you have to, like the cinemas, you have to bring them out. You have to, they have to come here. And the major theatre companies are in the CBD. And uh, and I, when I lived in Brunswick, Coburg, I've lived in Caroline Springs, I've lived in Point Cook, I've lived... Uh, kind of in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, I've even lived in Geelong, it's really hard, it's a big task to come out into town um, to, to the theatre. And also, it's grassroots. When I was at school, no one told me anything about the theatre. I, I knew about it because I, I, I enjoyed the theatre myself, but we didn't actively talk about it. And I know Regional Arts Victoria do a job. I, I, I did a show a couple of years ago for the MTC called I Call My Brothers. It did amazing. You, you know, you're talking about shows that do really well. It sold out the whole season, and I thought, why, why aren't there more shows like this that, that come around? But, but then uh, I, I digress from the main point. But the thing is, you've got to understand that, you know, Lebanese communities, Italian communities, the communities that I grew up with, they're not necessarily interested in theatre. It's much easier to watch something at home on TV, turn it on and here come the Habibs. What a great show that is. <laughs> and um, thanks for getting my tone. But I think it's, it's getting them out to the theatres, another thing together, and that's... Uh, that's a grassroots uh, issue, which is another panel altogether. But if I'm on the stage, my cousins come. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a lot of cousins, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. I think we're out of time. I'm sorry we don't have more time for questions, but I think we can continue some conversations in the foyer. I'd like everyone to thank our beautiful panel. <laughs>